Unity Community of Central Oregon's podcast. Oh, such a treat to be here again. I am so honored and delighted you were willing to have me come back. Eager. Oh, eager, he says. Can you go back again? Oh, such sweethearts. Thank you so very much. I'm going to start with a little history here. It's about 350 years ago, the Roman church had a tendency to look at someone who was um, exploring the nature of the physical world and say, uh-uh-uh, you don't get to do that, and burn them at stake. <laughs> yeah, some of us still do have nightmares. <laughs> so um, there was one cleric who said, there's got to be a way to fix this. And he thought about it. He really thought. In fact, most of us know him as the guy who said, I think, therefore I am. Cogito ergo sum. And what he figured out was if he could persuade the church to let all the people who look in the natural world over here, just leave them alone. And let all the people who are thinking about mind and spirit and consciousness be part of the church. Maybe he could make things work. It became known as the Cartesian split. You get to look at matter, or you get to look at spirit. You get to use your rational, intelligent, linear mind, your analytical mind, or you get to relax in the truth and the wholeness. But you don't get to do both. Well, guess where I am? <laughs> Firmly planted in both fields. <laughs> and that has been what has been going on through the 20th century. Okay? Starting with the quantum movement, the beginning of quantum theory, moving into psychotherapy and psychoanalysis and Jung's understanding of archetypes and the collective consciousness. And then as we move forward through the 20th century, we get into the fields that I was studying, which have to do with cybernetics and information and the field of information that surrounds us. And by the 1980s, 1990s, the national institutes of health in the US actually acknowledge there is a biofield, a biofield of informed energy that is defined by and defining the physical. Well, folks in New Thought knew that all along. <laughs> And so what happened, you can, and, you know, historians may look back at the 20th century and say it was the slow but steady erosion of the Cartesian split. I mean, even by the end of the 20th century, the Catholic Church was willing to publish Théa de Chardin's paleontology mixed with Christ. Wow! That was huge! and very powerful stuff. He's saying we are all evolving. We cannot help but become the embodiment of the Christ. Wow. And there are a number of Jesuits who agree with him. <laughs> Not so much the Dominicans. 
But they're the ones who invented burning at the stake, so, you know. <laughs> All right. So I grew up in this weird household where, you know, my, I was a, the only child of a single mom, and she really didn't want to be a mom, and it was really tough on her, and she'd farm me out as much as possible, thank heavens. And... <laughs> I got to spend like a weekend every month with my grandmother, and my grandmother had grown up the daughter of another firmly planted individual. Her father was a geologist who was also a Methodist preacher in the 1800s. Is that cool? <laughs> so at the turn of the last century, he was part of this shift. Anyway, so she ran off to India because she wanted to help the world. And she lived in India during the time that Victoria was over and Edward was beginning, and all of that whole new way of being. And she got the opportunity to work on some of Gandhi's projects, too. Well, she married while she was in India to an Illinois farm boy, and he couldn't stand it, and he brought the whole family back, and it broke her heart. <laughs> but what she did in this country is she became one of Gandhi's spokespeople. And she also began to find the American and English literature that would support the understandings that she began to experience in India. She had seen someone who was so connected with the divine be with someone who was blind or someone who was lame in a way that that person was no longer blind or lame. When you've seen that and felt that and had that experience, you're not the same person. And so she taught me that that line in the New Testament that Jesus says, these things and greater shall you do, was real. I was seven when I first got that. That's amazing. On the other side of the family, my mother had gone into the Navy during World War II and had been teaching pilots. So when Korea War came along, they needed people who knew how to analyze what the pilots were doing. And so she got hired by the Institute for Air Weapons Research. And she was working with engineers and mathematicians on nuclear weapons and military systems. That's an interesting contrast. <laughs> And then during my summers, I got to go hang out on a farm, a wonderful farm in Illinois, with some Lutherans. <laughs> and then the great breakthrough for me happened when my mother's younger sister married the son of a rabbi and converted. Lots of marvelous opportunities to realize that there are many paths up that mountain. <laughs> and to see in the lives of these individuals that they all get to the same place. It was a marvelous way to grow up. Didn't always enjoy it, but it was a really good way to do it. So as we come into you know, what's going on in the world today, uh, one of the things that happened in the, as I was growing up, and as many of the people in this room were growing up, there was this thing called the feminist movement, right? <laughs> and one of the things that became very obvious is that a number of women professionals were not getting paid at the same rate as men. And, um, you know, a lot of things like that. And it was uncomfortable. 
when my husband was unwilling, unable to support the family, I went back to school. Um, in fact, we did, we both went back initially on the GI Bill. That was the only thing I knew how to do, and he didn't know what he was going to do once he got out of the military. So, okay, so we go back to school. And then we ended up, you know, picking up a degree here, and then I picked up another degree, and then another degree, and, and that's what I knew how to do. And people were sometimes willing to pay me to do how to, to do that, so that was cool. And so that's how I supported the family. And because of the background that my mother was working in, and because of the nature of the world I was in, all of those degrees were in science-related fields, okay? So I learned ecology, and I learned various forms of environmental studies. I have a master's degree in cybernetics, and I'll explain that to anyone who wants to know after the service, and <laughs> we keep going with this. So what I was learning were all these scientific theories about how the world works. And what I saw during the 20th century, the late part after World War II, was that there was a body of thought and theory that explained things in totally different terms from the physics and chemistry and biology that we have all been taught. Systems theory says everything is one whole. One big, great whole. And that anything within that whole is a subsystem of that whole. And that a system, if you carve out a little piece of the whole, you take a group of elements that are functioning together to accomplish something, and that's a system. Any group of elements functioning together to accomplish something. That's pretty cool. And so I was looking at that, and part of what came up through that, there was a biochemist in the 70s named Ilya Prigogine. He got a Nobel Prize for recognizing that those systems are maintained by a constant flow of matter, energy, and information. And if there is anything in that system that is blocking that flow, or if that flow suddenly comes in a great quantity or dwindles down to a little bit, the system tends to fall apart. The technical term is dissipative structures. So that was phenomenal for me. Because it helped me understand that who I am is just like a whirlpool in the bottom of the bathtub. <laughs> this energy is flowing through and sustaining this, and it has to keep on flowing to sustain this, right? I shared in the earlier service that when I, I got to be about 36, I had reached the pinnacle. I had accomplished anything I could ever want to, do, to accomplish, and partly because I had been at the level when I had a master's degree, I had been hired as an assistant to guys with bachelor's degrees. <laughs> And that wasn't working real well for me. <laughs> yeah, they were nice guys, and I liked working with them, but really? <laughs> so I went on to get more degrees. And <laughs> that way maybe I could be hired as a colleague instead of an assistant. And it never really worked. But anyway, what, <laughs> what did happen is that the field, the program where I got that master's in cybernetics called me back and said, please, would you come run the program? I went, ooh, this is cool. I'll go back and do that. That's wonderful. The only problem was I was living in Portland, and they were in San Jose. And I had two wonderful kids 
and a consulting business in Portland. <laughs> and I had been teaching part-time, but the consulting business was what was supporting the family. And I couldn't just walk away from these, some of them were pretty significant projects. And so I tried doing both at the same time. <laughs> running a program in San Jose and finishing a project in Portland. You know, about buying coffee, you can do 10, you know, mark off 10 cups of coffee and you get a free one. Try airlines, 10 flights, you get a free one. <laughs> Jim knows that story. I was commuting between San Jose and Portland. And my kids were living in Palo Alto. And it was rough. And the body gave out, just totally gave out. Between the stresses of trying to do all of that, the pressures that were going on in the academic environment directing this program, and the strain that had begun to emerge in my marriage that started when my husband decided that we weren't going to church anymore. No one in the family was going to have that life anymore. It never occurred to him that the rest of us depended on it. He just was done. <laughs> and that's cool for him. <laughs> it didn't work for us. It certainly didn't work for me. So suddenly, I was in this incredibly stressful life with no spiritual support. And as I say, the body gave out. I ended up on my back for about six months. Um, lots of pain, lots of nasty symptoms, bad prognosis, all that sort of thing. The reason it was only six months was because I had some wonderful coaching from the inside. So what happened was I was in, I began to spend more and more time in Portland, less and less time in San Jose. I went on leave and I spent more time there. And I thought, if I could just finish up in Portland and, and then I'll just be in San Jose and then I'll take the pressure off and everything will be fine. Except the more I took the pressure off, the worse the body got. No one here has ever had that problem, right? <laughs> It's funny how that works. We keep going, we keep going, we keep going. The moment we stop, everything tumbles together, right? So, but I have these things. I had what my grandmother had taught me very early on. These things and greater shall you do. Healing is possible in that connection with the Christ. And then over here, I had all this wonderful systems thinking and the understanding of how the body is a self-maintaining system and this flow is, and all of that. So I knew there was a way through this, even though the medical doctors weren't able to find one. There had to be. And my daughters were young enough that I was not ready to leave the planet. Five years later, maybe, but not then. <laughs> and so I took some time, and curled up in bed in pain, right? That's six months on my back. Oh my goodness. I'm sure some of you have had this experience where there is just nothing there but the pain. And you're in that deep, dark place where all there is is how much it hurts. And there isn't anything you can do about it. And I would sometimes just lie there crying, help me, help me. There's got to be a way. I know there's a way. Help me. 
And sometimes that would be my mantra, right? Now, I knew about meditation, and I had practiced meditation, and that was the best I could do at that point. And then one day, I'd done that so much, I was exhausted, and I began to hear inside me, from a voice that I didn't know was there, a repeat, help me. I'm going, what? I thought I was the only voice here. Help me. Help you what? Help me help you. Whoa. There is a part of me that can help the rest of me. There is a part of me that can do something about this pain. I'm listening. <laughs> and so I spent some time just practicing listening. And as I did so, I began to be aware that it was asking and suggesting that I do some different things, that I go over here, or I drink this, or I maybe even try eating that, and you know, whatever it was. So I got into a habit. I practiced following the inner voice. And for about a year and a half, starting with this six months, I was beginning to undo things. That's all I did. I would not do anything until the inner voice said, do this. It's a very interesting practice. I strongly recommend it because you get in that place, right? So the voice started leading me to different places, including unity churches and religious science churches, never on a Sunday. Never when anyone was around. But there would always be a pamphlet or a brochure or a booklet, something that was the next step that I needed. And so I began to read them. And one of them was Charles Fillmore's The Atmos Smashing Power of the Mind. Oh my goodness. Now, remember, I was raised in a world of atomic energy, right? And not even energy, just atom smashing. In fact, I used to pass the cyclotron, and my mother worked on the Manhattan Project of the West Stands of the University of Chicago on my way to school. So that was really familiar stuff. So I was going, oh yeah, I can pay attention to this one, right? The atom smashing power of the mind. That's got to come be helpful here. Another thing was Emmett Fox's golden key. Meant absolutely nothing to me at first. I just kept reading it and reading it and reading it. And it boils down to if there is an issue or a problem, focus on the divine. Don't focus on the problem. Didn't understand it at all, but tried it, because <laughs> that's where the voice had taken me. And did, you know, was guided into a Reiki class, which fit perfectly with my understanding of what, you know, these things in greater shall you do. And I kept going back to the sciences and going, mm, I'm the only thing that's working for me is this realization that this body is a self-maintaining. Oh, it's a self-creating system. And then there was this breakthrough for me. It is a self-transforming system. Oh my goodness. It's not that I have to heal something. It's that I have to allow it to fall apart and something else to emerge, a transformed being. 
And I found some other books that were useful and helpful. And I, you know, I had seen The Course in Miracles many times at that point. And I had, you know, and just all these little bits and pieces came together. And you will know how that is, I know, because you're in this room, <laughs> right? Oh, there's that piece. Oh, there's that. Oh, and that's helpful, you know? And if you go through and that comes. And you have these experiences that pull you deeper and deeper into that awareness of, oh my goodness, it really is a flow. And I can be part of it, and if I allow that flow and do not block it, I feel good. That's cool. Well, where are these blocks coming from? One of the practices in Reiki is to experience, it's called a mental, and you experience the energy flowing through the body, and as you do, you find where the blocks are, and you assist those blocks to dissolve. So I started doing that for myself, because you're supposed to do Reiki on yourself, and I started doing that, and I'd find these blocks, these little, and I saw them as little black cubes, <laughs> and I'd find them in all sorts of places, and a lot of the symptoms that I had, funny thing, were related to those little black cubes. <laughs> And I discovered that every one of those black cubes was related to a thought, an idea, a feeling, or a leftover bit of anger, bitterness, and fear. Every single one of them. About that time, Catherine Marshall's book, Something More, came my way, in which she describes how she, in her late 30s, had been put to bed with what the doctors were calling tuberculosis, TB. And she spent two years in bed while they figured out was, you know, nothing worked, nothing worked, nothing worked. And then she was, this is the woman who wrote A Man Called Peter, and the novels Christie and Julie, and she was active in her church and was a Bible-based Christian. And one day, someone read the verse, forgive aught against any, A-U-G-H-T. Forgive aught against any. And she realized that she had a lot of unforgivenesses in her life. Most of us do. We're kind of trained to, actually. And so she started writing letters. And if they were alive, she'd sent the letter. And if they were dead, she burnt the letter so that the spirit world would have access to it. And in those letters, she said, I am realizing that I am holding on to blank, whatever it was, right? And I am letting it go. And I'd like your cooperation in helping me let it go. That was very cool. And about that time, I really started studying the Course in Miracles in a new way. And in the Course in Miracles, there is a lot of that too. You know, forgiveness is the path. Releasing is the path. And about that time, I began to understand that the processes of psychotherapy were not complete. They were not complete. They all would do one piece of it. So over here was the piece where you would do the analysis and figure out what the issue was. 
And over here was where you would do the metaphorical archetypal stuff, that's Jung, and you would figure out what that was leading to or what that was connected to. And over here was where you would do the cognitive behavioral therapy and start operating in a different way. And over here was where you do the primal scream and get it out. <laughs> and over here, and what I realized as the 12 steps plus that. So I put them all together. <laughs> and I went, okay, I know all of these work, but I know none of them are sufficient. <laughs> and I studied them thoroughly, and I, I had, well, a degree in psychology of consciousness, so I, you know, I was familiar with them, and, and I studied them thoroughly, and I worked with them, and I developed a process that worked for me, and it's now on my website and a lot of other places, Ruth's Method for Releasing the Past. And what I found was that if I allowed myself to acknowledge the issue, just first of all, be aware of it, and then acknowledge it, and then accept it. Oh, yeah, this is real in my life. This is affecting me. This is affecting the people around me. I accept that, okay? And then, oh my goodness, there's kind of a blessing here but I really don't feel good about the rest of it. And I start to feel the feelings, the old feelings and the new feelings. And I began to realize if I can get these feelings out of the body, so I started doing the equivalent of primal scream therapy, right? I would dance, I would run, you know, I would beat on things, everyone get that one, the old anger management stuff, right? Beat on things, right, 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 right. And uh, the hard rock and everything else, and then I'd go take a shower and I'd wash it all off. And then I'd have all this garbage in the room. <laughs> what am I going to do with this? Huh. All right. Well, I guess we'll have to clear it all up. <laughs> and one of the things I learned in Reiki was that energy accumulates in the room, right? And that you can clear out the energy. So I started clearing out the energy that accumulated in the space. And I rolled it all up in a great big plastic bag. Did I tell you my mother read science fiction? Anyway, I grew up on science fiction. So right, rolling this big plastic bag up the ramp into the rocket ship. Oh, get rid of all this stuff into the rocket ship, close the door, nine, eight, seven, and go and watch the fire, the steam come out and the fire come out, and then we get lift off and then fire it into the sun where it gets transformed into healing light. Ah. <laughs> Here I am in the light. It's done. It's done. What next? I better decide what I want next. What do I want? You ever been in that place? Everything is wide open. You can claim anything you want. Well, I knew I wanted to be well. That was first. <laughs> the body is healed and whole. I knew love was part of it. The love between us continues regardless of the form of relationship. I knew my kids needed to be healthy and whole. And we lovingly co-partner and co-parent my children, our children, so they are healed and whole. Yes. And I claimed it. And I felt it. And I knew it had to be so. And it was. And it was wonderful for about six months. <laughs> Life does not go straight up. 
life is a sine wave. <laughs> but every time it got easier and better. Every time it was less of an issue. Every time I got stronger and stronger. And now I'm you know, fully functional, I hope. <laughs> well, maybe not. There may be more I can do. I'm looking forward to that. Anyway, <laughs> so what I had done is I had taken my systems thinking and my spiritual understanding and the whole realm of psychotherapy, mushed it all together to experience wholeness, to experience freedom, to experience life and light as the core and essence and fulfillment of who I am. And then I discovered one more piece of science, and then I'll be quiet. One more piece of science. This is a microbiologist at Cambridge University, and he was interested in the evolution of the biological life forms on this planet. And what he discovered was there had been, for example, a mutation in Siberia of a particular form of daisy. And within a relatively short geological time span, there would be almost an identical mutation in, say, the Americas and in Africa. Totally disconnected, no way that they could have been, you know, butterflies or bees or something contributing to this mutation. And so he started looking at other things. And he realized that every life form has a biofield. <laughs> he didn't use that term because it was before they, they accepted it. But every life form has a field. Now, biologists have known that forever because how would it, does a cell turn into a body? It has a field that guides the cell form. You know, how does this cell right here know to curve over to the top instead of keep going forever? I mean, really, how does it know that? unless there's some kind of information, energetic information, guiding it. So that's the morphogenic field, the shape-creating field of the body. He suggested that all species have resonating <laughs> fields so that when one over here is doing this, or the other one goes, oh, we could be doing that too. And another one over here, we could be doing that too. And so they were, were linked by their resonance. And in fact, it's called the theory of morphic resonance, Rupert Sheldrake. And so he put that together and put it in a book. And this was toward the end of my process. I was beginning to feel pretty good and pretty effective and wondering what I could do. And he's saying, just by allowing it to happen in me, I was encouraging it to happen in everyone everywhere who resonated with me. That is so cool. <laughs> because each and every one of us is capable of doing whatever we need to do to experience who and what we fully are. We don't have to worry about everybody else up there. And in fact, to bring it back around to my grandmother, it became we get to be the change we wish to see in the world. Mahatma K. Gandhi, Mohandas K. Gandhi, the Mahatma. Wow. Thank you, Gandhiji. Whenever we are it, whenever we are that which we wish we could be or the world could be, Everybody in the world who resonates that at any level is facilitated and encouraged and made more possible in doing that. So I went on from doing 
my process to trying to share this out in the world through my consulting practice. And what I learned is consultants are very handy for the moment, but you know, whatever the work they've done is gone very quickly. <laughs> so um, I started having a little bit of a downturn, and I realized, oh, I haven't been following the voice lately. <laughs> None of us has ever done that. <laughs> and one day the voice said, I want you to go to such and such a space, a church. And I'm going, you've always told me no. This is, after, you know, 10 years after my process almost, no, six years after I started the process. You've always said no, I can't go to that place. Today you're going to that place. Okay, I'll go there. And I went there. I'd begun to realize I needed to be doing work in the ministry. And in Portland at that time, there was an evangelical seminary and a Catholic seminary. I wasn't going to go either one of those places. So don't know what this is about, but guidance is saying, go to the church. OK, so I go to the church, and today it's in a tent. They're remodeling the building, so it's outside in the tent. And finally, they get there, I get there, and a woman comes out to speak. She's not the minister, she is someone, you know, someone like Jim, comes out to speak, and she is the woman, oh my goodness, that was the woman in my dream this morning saying, welcome to the body of Christ. And she ran their ministry training program. And so I became a new thought minister. <laughs> And uh, in the process, began to write some of the books that Jane talked about. And one of them is my merging of science and new thought in the book, The Science of Mental Healing, which lays out the history of our movement and the science that explains it. And I hope, you know, if you find what I'm saying useful, I'll be glad to share more of that later. Thank you all so much.